0: Welcome to
1: Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Could lake monsters originate from deep within the earth? How could unknown giant creatures remain undetected in 2022? What is the Orang Pendek? Hello and welcome to the 961st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WOON AM and FM Radio in Winsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal app from TalkStream Live and on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben and I am flying solo today because my dad took a little trip off with uh, with my mom. There, they're uh, they're they're off on a grand excursion. Hopefully to be back relatively soon. And uh, today we welcome back the Indiana Jones of cryptozoology, and that would be none other than uh, Richard Freeman who is a globe-trotting zoologist who works as a full-time cryptozoologist uh searching for and writing about unknown animals. Uh for many years he has been on the trail of such critters as the uh, Sasquatch or Yeti, the Mongolian deathworm, one of my personal favorites, uh the giant anaconda, the Nikki Nikki Nanaki or Nikki Nanka, Nikki Nanka. Jeez, you know, uh, mouth, mouthful of words. And orang pendek, which is much easier to say. And uh, the Gull, uh, the author of eight books that that I know of, anyway. Uh, unless unless there are, are more, Richard, and Nick, or or if there are more coming down the pipeline.
0: Yeah, I've just finished writing another one called The Highest Strangeness, which is a bit of a departure for me because it's not pure cryptozoology. It's all forms of fortiana. And it's about the very, very high strangeness cases in all areas of Forteana. That should be up
1: next year. Oh, well, fair enough. So we'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, Richard is also the uh, Zoological Director at the Centre for for Fortean Zoology in uh, Devonshire, England, Uh, the world's only full-time mystery animal research organization, I should add. Uh, Richard has lectured widely and uh, makes frequent media appearances. He is featured as one of the greats in our own book, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, uh, published in 2017. So Richard Freeman, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's great great to have you with me on this on this fun solo journey. So I guess we'll, we'll, we'll begin uh, with some of the creatures that I mentioned in your bio, and uh, we, we all know about Sasquatch and Yeti, but what is the one that I had trouble pronouncing, which is the Ninki Nanka? Uh, have, have, have you seen it? What is your experience? Where, what, what is it?
0: It's um, a dragon-like beast said to inhabit the swamps of the Gambia in West Africa. And uh, I thought initially when I went over it could be similar to the Mekelium Bembe, which I think may be a gigantic semi-aquatic monitor lizard. But when I actually got to the Gambia, I found it was a much more folkloric creature. Uh, <clears throat> people would say, oh, um, a great hunter from my village once saw it and he died. If you see it, you're supposed to die within five years. And it's an omen of, of death. And um, Anything bad gets blamed on the Minky Manka. Uh, pollution events, outbreaks of disease, uh, road accidents. And um, we only met one person that claimed to have seen it and his description was so fantastical and huge was yeah. of this Godzilla-sized creature crawling out of a, a hole in a swamp. Uh, we pretty much concluded that it's a demonization of a pre-Islamic Python cult because many African societies venerated different animals, crocodiles, lions, hyenas and pythons. And we think it may be that when Islam came in and took over in West Africa, the old religions were demonized, and the Python uh, deity became this uh, demonic dragon-like creature, the of, of the film
1: That's really interesting because something similar kind of kind of happened in, um, uh, in in what in Europe as well, right? You know, Christianity came in, and and a lot of the the old gods were either reappropriated. Or, or they were turned into sort of these fantastical monsters, and the first thing that kind of comes to mind is you know the dragon, right? And um, and and it's it's interesting, and I want to want to expand a little bit on this before we move on to our, our next suspect here. You, you you mentioned folkloric monsters. Now there there's sort of a dichotomy here, right? So folkloric versus, let's say, flesh and blood, right? Where where is the line between something that's folkloric versus, let's say, like you know a Sasquatch or a Yeti?
0: Whoa. It's a good question and the line is blurred because with something like dragons they are truly universal. They are rightly the kings and great great grandfathers of all monsters. Uh, dragon lore has been traced back to sub-Saharan Africa over 40,000 years ago and they appear in every single continent and culture on earth from the Australian Aborigines uh, right to the north of Russia, everywhere. The, in Britain alone, there's over 100 dragon legends in, in Britain alone. And um, there are still claimed sightings of dragons and dragon-like creatures today. Um, Linda Godfrey, in her book um, American Monsters, talked of a dragon sighting from Wisconsin. Uh, I think it was in 2012, multiple witness sighting of a classic dragon. Four legs, two wings scaly skin, breathing fire. Uh, uh, it's obvious these things can't be flesh and blood animals that are living in our world all the time because they turn up on radar, they would be attacking planes, but people would see them more often. Yeah, that's a good so point. It's like, like the, the, the Dragon Legend has multiple, um, multiple strings to it, and multiple, there's it's not one answer to it, but it's a... Uh, a melange of different things. Now, some of these things could be interdimensional. They could exist in other planes or other dimensions, and they just enter our world under certain circumstances for a short time, or we enter their world for a short time. So, we're visible to each other for a short time. Very interestingly, um, I've been told independently by about three different Muslim people. They believe in creatures called jinn where we get the word jinn from. And these are creatures that are supposed to be made out of smokeless fire, which you could translate as energy. And usually we can't see them, and they can't see us. But on, in certain circumstances, they can see us, and we can see them. And there's stories of people slipping through into the world of jinn, or the jinn entering our world. Now interestingly, the jinn are supposed to come in a number of forms. They can manifest as dragons, huge hairy apes, monstrous black dogs, huge cats, or monstrous birds. And these all tie in with what I call the global monster template. In cultures all over the world, you have dragon-like monsters, you have these hairy ape-like creatures, uh, you have monstrous birds, monstrous demonic dogs, uh, mysterious big cats, and also little people, goblins and things. And... I think it's just uh, semantics, it's just another word for these creatures that can enter our world from their world.
1: That's really interesting, because last week we had, um, we had John Horgan on, on with us, who's, who's sort of a local guy for us, and uh, uh, not too far from, from the studio that I'm in currently, there's a, a place that's referred to as the Bridgewater Triangle. Um, and, and in there, there's everything from black dogs, right? You know, the monstrous black dogs uh, to, you know, thunderbirds, sort of the American answer to, um, you know, like giant birds and all that stuff. And there's, there's also some, there's Sasquatch reports, you know, UFOs, all sorts of stuff like that. And I, I asked this question to him, and I, I, I kind of like how you put it with the, the global monster template. Because I was saying, you know, not a lot of this stuff isn't, isn't mutually exclusive, right? You know, this is stuff that's that's been been around forever, you know, like uh, sort of the, the sort of resurgence of humanoid canines or, or or whatever, you know, or, you know, if you want to just tag, tag on the term werewolf, uh, even though it has a lot of baggage with it, you could. But the, the thing is, a lot of this stuff just isn't new, you know, it's sort of just interpreted via the culture, right? So it's it's fascinating that, that now that I'm considering that term, that a lot of this is just a part of the, of the human experience, right? So we we interpret the phenomena through cultural sort of our, our cultural eyes or, or the perspective that we've gained through, through our culture, which we I would say we, we would appropriate the phenomena. Would, would you agree?
0: Yes, absolutely. Because werewolves, in actual medieval legend, if you look at the legend of werewolves, they're nothing like the dogmen or werewolves that are seen today. A werewolf in legend is a person that transforms entirely into a wolf that is indistinguishable from any other wolf, uh, perhaps, uh, except by weird behaviour. And uh, these sort of wolf-man hybrids, which are a creation of Hollywood, really, they're pretty much unknown in folklore. In folklore, the the werewolf looks like any other wolf, and it could have had its uh, origins in raided wolves, uh, because wolves usually avoid people but a raided wolf might attack someone, or, or, or attack livestock, or attack humans, and bite them, and then pass on rabies. So the human would start popping at the mouth and attacking people. And in uh, many of the times, they believe that that was a curse. Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a really interesting point. I was uh, I, I listened to this this lecture a long time ago um, on on sort of you know mid, like ancient cosmology, right? So how how um, how the the sort of ancients viewed things and there was a really interesting um this really interesting dynamic that was brought up a lot and that was the 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 idea of order versus chaos and so everything outside of civilization was chaos and everything inside of civilization was order and so in this in this instance it's uh you know you have something that's outside of civilization you know a monster or something like that right something that's monstrous is something on the fringes of of society, you know whether it be you know you know a predator of some sort, you know this sort of significance of of um religious significance is is, is put on a lot of this stuff and. I, I'm going to move this slightly back because I really want to talk about lake monsters in, in terms of dragons right you know you have St. George right who who who, take, who you know murders a dragon and, and becomes you know essentially a, a saint and pr- essentially creates the first gargoyle at least in, in medieval folklore right because he takes the head of the dragon and he puts it on the church and it's supposed to you know kind of freak everybody out freak all the other dragons out but it, it, it's Thank oh I'm sorry St.
0: George didn't do that St. George um uh Born in Libya of uh, a fuller's shop, uh, I think it was in the, the second or third century AD. And um, during his lifetime, he was never associated with dragons. That was something that was tacked on much, much later. Oh, okay. Hey, originally he was. Uh, he had a job providing pork to Roman legions, and they found out he was stealing this pork, so he was basically chased out of town. And, uh, later, during this of Christians that didn't believe in the divinity of Christ and because Christianity uh, its favour waxed and waned under the various emperors, sometimes he was in favour and sometimes he wasn't but uh, at one time he was uh, desecrating pagan temples and taxing people so much that they tried to lynch him and he had to be locked up for his own um, safety but in the end, he, 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 uh, he ended up getting lynched and killed and thrown into the sea. Um, later, when this heretical part of Christianity, this heretical sect, was reabsorbed into the main um, body of Christianity, he became a martyr and a saint, and they got sort of tacked on the dragon thing. And they got the idea from Perseus and Andromeda, the, uh, the legend of Perseus and Andromeda in Greek mythology, and that's where the legend of... George and the Dane comes from. The other one with the gargoyle, that was in France, and that was um, uh, an aquatic dragon that came up out of the river, and instead of breathing fire, it spat water, and uh, it drowned by spitting water. And the gargoyles themselves are based on the creature's head and neck, because they were meant to put a rainwater out, and that was where, where we get the, the gargoyle from. But interestingly, <coughs> Uh, we think of dragons as associated with fire, and being fire, but in most cultures they're, in, <coughs> they're in, um, very much linked with the element of water and the idea of water and the ocean as chaos. And they are they are very much uh, the embodiment of chaos and water, having power over seas, oceans, lakes, rivers, rainfall, uh, all throughout the orient. they they're considered to have this power. Their breath condenses and causes rain, and they make the tides go. And they live in and around the water. I and mean, even in Western legends, you will find in a lot of, for instance, a lot of British dragon legends, they're associated with wells and rivers and lakes and coming out of the water. So it's the element of water rather than fire that is most closely linked to the dragon.
1: So that, that kind of takes us back, back over sort of to, to lake monsters, right? Um, there's, there's so many different types, you know, and, and you, know, you know, you have horse heads, snake heads, you know, undulating or not undulating, any, anything in that realm. Why are they so different? Is it culture-based? Is it how, how someone sees it? You know, what's the difference and why are they so different?
0: Well, one animal can look very different depending on what view you're getting of it, where you're looking at it from, what it's doing, how much of it is visible. But I think there are a number of different species of sea serpent. With creatures in lakes, I think most of them refer to large fish, either gigantic eels or gigantic sturgeon. That's if we're talking about flesh and blood animals. With the open oceans, uh, all bets are off because there's liable to be lots of large um, unknown creatures still lurking in the world of these oceans. Uh, there's ichthyologist ichthyologist, uh, I know, called uh, Dr. Charles Paxton, and he wrote a paper predicting how many large unknown animals are still left to be discovered, and he calculated this on the rate of discovery of big marine animals, and uh, he came up with uh, around, the, the, around 40 large species of animals still living in the sea that we know nothing about.
1: I know, yeah, the first one that comes to mind for me is Arch- Architeuthis, right? You know, the, the giant squid when it was discovered. And um, you know, it's 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 interesting because we you know, there it, it is such a large body of water and there's so much that we don't know about it. And I i I'm still I think this is true. If it's not, you know, please correct me, that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our own oceans. You know, either Marianas Trench kinda jumps to mind as well, you know. And so there's all these all this space to grow yeah. and um and it's 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 interesting because you know you think of think of lake monsters especially you know there's not there's not a ton of room you'd think there'd be huge dents in population fish populations or anything like that to support a creature that size you know any like um you know Ch- champ over in lake champlain here in the united states lochness monster of course or or really you know or macaulay and bembe if you want to kind of lump lump him in there as well and it's yeah, you know, but at least in the open ocean, it's kind of hard to, to detect that. At the very least, usually they're kind of stumbled upon. Am I am I right or am I wrong?
0: Yes, yes. Most of it is happenstance, Um one of the most tragic stories involves a French biologist called Pierre Denis de um, uh, who lived in the uh, late I think, early nineteenth century. Uh, he was a biologist who specialised specialised in mollusks, and he worked for the French Natural History Museum and the Botanical Gardens, and he was sent all over, as far afield as Egypt, uh, collecting specimens, and he wrote many books on mollusks, and he started to talk to whalers from Nantucket who had um, settled in Paris, and they told him about finding great sucker marks on the hides of whales and dying whales vomiting at these great tentacles. And he realised this must refer to a gigantic species of squid, particularly in Maine's science. And he linked this with the Norse legend the kraken. the multi-armed animal that was said to attack ships. And he talked to a number of people that said they'd seen these things, uh, including one guy who said he was on a ship uh, off the coast of Angola. Um, they were decalmed, and so they sent people down uh, on planks with ropes to scrape off barnacles from the side of the ship whilst they weren't going anywhere. And they were attacked by a monstrous squid which pulled several of these people over and dragged them under, and it only let go of the boat when one of its tentacles was hacked off. Now, because of this theory, Pierre-Denis de Montfort Mont- Mont- became a scientific pariah. Everybody laughed at him. They thought he was an idiot for believing in sea monsters. Uh, he lost his job. He couldn't find work. He was reduced to selling seashells for a living and finally died in, of starvation in the Parisian Gutter in
1: 1820.
0: Oh, the poor guy. In the 1850s, he was proved right when the first giant squid was actually captured. But he was right about the giant squid all along and he's never got any of the credit for being the guy that came up with the theory. And t- today he's still thought of as, as this pariah, and he really needs rehabilitating and giving credit for what he discovered.
1: Interesting. Well, I guess uh, now is probably as good a time as any to hop into our uh, some listener questions, and uh, we have our our always dependable uh, Peter from uh, from uh, from down south in, in Colombia who writes to us. Uh, please ask Richard Freeman, could time slips be an explanation for some cryptid cases? And if so, what cases might fit and why? And we talked about this a little bit, but if you wanted to expand on it, feel free.
0: Yeah, it's not my field of study time slips, but it would explain a lot. So sort of the sightings of pterosaurs, for example. Now, if pterosaurs were around today, we'd know about it. We'd see them all the time. Just take North America, where these Pterosaur-like creatures are are reported from the southern states. The country's is full of bird watchers who are constantly look, scanning the skies with binoculars. These things have been seen all the time. We'd have found where they're nesting. There'd have been documentaries made about them. You can't hide something with a 30 or 40 foot wingspan that's flying around in the sky. But people claim to have seen these creatures. So could it be that they're, they're getting some sort of view back in time through some aspects of physics that we don't understand. It makes more sense than that there is a, a surviving population of neo that have not evolved at all and are, are still existing completely out of time.
1: That is, that is actually, yeah, like a kind of land of the lost scenario in... in as well, and I, I guess we're we're coming up to our, our our break. We might I might as well introduce the question so we can shift away from from the the misty waters and perhaps into the, the misty mountains. Uh, and I'll, I'll introduce this and give you give you a chance to kind of formulate a, a response to it. Which essentially we're going to shift into Orang Pendek, which I, I I know a wee bit about, but not not a ton. So you're going to be headed to Sumatra relatively soon. Is that is that correct?
0: Yes, uh, in about. On the 14th of September, actually, I'm going for a month. This will be my sixth
1: expedition. Oh wow! Wow, six, six, expedition, sixth expedition. Jeez. All right. Well, we'll 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 talk about Orang Pendek when we come back from our break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here in the somewhat uh, warm Blackstone River Valley, and uh, we'll be right back.
0: You can depend on us for public service. Owen
1: Radio Local and live at
0: 99.5 FM
1: Well that was a very quick break that I did not expect <laughs> Usually there's, it's, it's, it's fun with automation software Sometimes it'll pick something that's long Sometimes it'll pick something short And in this case it picks something short So we'll just get right back into, into it with, with our guest uh, So Orang Pendek What is Orang Pendek? Why is it in Sumatra? And, and what is the significance of finding it?
0: The name means the short man. Uh, orang means man or person in Malay. The orangutan is man of the forest, and orang is the short man. It's supposed to be a very muscular, powerfully built, but relatively short, upright walking ape. Three to five feet tall. It lives on the forest floor. It's not arboreal. It doesn't live habitually in the trees, like um, the main species of orangutan. And it's been reported, Ever since the colonial era, uh, Sumatra, which is a large island in Indonesia, used to be a Dutch colony, and the the British East India Company used to do a lot of trading there. So, sightings of this creature go back <coughs> all the way to the 18th century, and it's not just natives that are reporting it; it's westerners as well, including um, a, a woman called Debbie Martha who's now the head of the Indonesian Paleo Conservation Group, who saw the animal, I think, on four separate occasions. And um, it's also a, a, a British wildlife cameraman who thought he didn't film it, but he saw it. He saw this animal as So uh, it's, it's been deemed as one of the most likely cryptids to exist. And I've been over there on its trail for... Uh, oh, nearly 20 years now. I've found its footprints, I've found its handprints, I've heard it calling in the forest. Uh, one of my friends in the native guide actually saw the creature in a tree, and saw it get down from the tree and walk away on its hind legs. And we got hair from it. It was analysed by uh, a guy called Lars Thomas, who's linked with Copenhagen University. And he's an expert on mammal hair, and he looked at it and said that this animal is related to the Sumatran orangutan but it's not the Sumatran orangutan. Now there are three types of known orangutan, the Bornean orangutan, the Sumatran orangutan and the Tapamele orangutan, and the Tapamele orangutan was only discovered in uh, 2017. So what we think this is, this is the orangutan death, it's the fourth type of orangutan in my opinion but it's one that lives on the forest Floor, rather than the trees, it walks upright like a man, and most of the sightings say it's got black or dark grey hair, rather than the ginger of the orangutan.
1: Interesting. So how how do you go about uh, hunting on your exped- expeditions? Is there is there a certain method that you use? Have you have you changed techniques over the years? What, what's what's your process?
0: Well, this time around, we're going to four new places that I've never been before. Most of the time before we were in Gunung-Tuju, uh, sorry, Curinju-Sablak National Park, uh, around an area called Gunung-Tuju, the Lake of Seven Feet, which is a caldera of an extinct volcano that's full of, of water. And, the kind of lake. and there are many dolphins around there. But this time we're, we're concentrating on the the north, where there's been recent dolphins. So what we did, we set up camera traps fairly early on and we leave them there then we trek into the, the jungle trying to get film of the creature as well and we leave out bait like fruit. And we look for hair, we look for uh, field sign like um, footprints and handprints. And we also interview witnesses. The last time I was over there, we got the biggest group of uh, Orang-Pendek witnesses that um, have ever been brought together. And they're remarkably consistent in their stories about this more powerfully built animal it's not aggressive but they're frightened of it when they see it because it looks it has a very human look about it and it frightens them hmm that's
1: that's really interesting now is there is there any folkloric significance to the to the locals in any way
0: not really they don't attach they don't attach uh, any mystical powers to it but in the same area they there are other creatures, there is uh, a race of pygmies they call the orang the tiny people, and they insist that they are different from the Orang-Kendek. They say that they are more human looking, they are more slightly built, they are a lot less hairy, they have long hair on the head, but they are a lot less hairy in the body, and they, they hunt with bamboo spears. And an old guide of my father passed away now called Sahar, he said that his father, it was also, also there uh, back in 1981 i think, um on a trading trip with a friend of his trading rice for the goods in remote villages and they were camped out in this very remote area this mountainous area of Coochie Sublac National Park and they said they were cooking some rice and this tiny little man came out and started stealing the rice from the pot so Sahar's father's friend killed it with a parang, which is uh, similar to machete. And they said that all of a sudden, out of the jungle came lots of these little people with bamboo spears and speared Sahar's father's friend to death, but didn't attack Sahar's father. And we think that these might be related to Homo traitiensis and Homo with the two tiny hominids that have been discovered recently, the, the um, hobbit people from Flores, and the more recently discovered and very closely related species from the Philippines, which are known from skulls and teeth and jaws and bones, and it looks like they're a sister group to Homo habilis, which is a hominid from uh, East Africa, from the fossil record, that was supposed to guide out 1.9 million years ago, and we had no idea that it left Africa. But it's it seems to have this lineage of descendants uh, nearly two million years out of time and half the world away from where it should be, which begs the question: What else is out there?
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if if there's if there's you know a, a tribe of pygmies just floating around there, I, I, I would imagine that there's that you know who knows what else is out there. Now, is is there any sort of are, are there any anthropologists that are looking into this? Do they, do they care? Is The is Yeah,
0: of Gregory fourth has written two very good books, uh, Images of the Wild Man in Southeast Asia, and more recently, uh, this one here, uh, Between Ice and Human, which is... That's good, uh, Between Ice and Human by Gregory fourth And that's about... It's about his on the Indonesian island of Flores, which is uh, a long thin island in, in Indonesia. And that is the, the island where Homo piratiensis was discovered, the subpopular bones of Homo piratiensis. And to this day, the tribes in the east of the island, in the mountains, swear that there's this little ape-like creature about a meter tall, whose description sounds just like the reconstructions of Homo piratiensis. And it's still living in the, the jungles of those, uh, and the mountains of eastern Florida. And this book, written by professional anthropologist, absolutely
1: fascinating. That is really fascinating. I wanted to get myself a copy of that. Uh, Between ape and human. Um, that's 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 so interesting because it, it's it's we like to think we know everything, you know. And it's uh, <laughs> especially here in the modern world. It's like okay, cool. We already know everything. Every, everything's discovered. Whatever. What what sort of um, do you have any, any response from from mainstream zoology in this department? Do they do, do you do you present anything to them, or is it just kind of not even not even worth it?
0: Yes, um, before he untimely death, uh I worked with um, the uh, a geneticist from Oxford University, um, a professor Brian... Sorry, I'm terrible with remembering names, uh, mm-hmm. Professor Brian Sykes, who was looking into um, samples of hair from various colonies around the world, uh, I worked with him, I work with uh, Lars Thomas from Copenhagen University, uh, his colleague uh, is colleagues colleague in the genetics department, um, he's a hair expert that has friends in the genetics department. Um, so I'm very open to working with uh, mainstream zoologists and mainstream scientists uh, and the way right forward, I think is, is genetics, is DNA. There was a very interesting case from 2018 where a um, British zoologist went into the Himalayas who called Mark Evans and went into Bhutan uh, in the Himalayas searching for the yeti. And they, they took with them uh, Dr. Eva Bellarmine, who was a French And they took some water from a pool in the mountains where I animals mean came to drink. And they looked for environmental DNA in it. That's when animals leave their DNA in an environment by walking through it or moving through it. And they slip off cells and things. So if an animal comes to drink, for example, from a pool, some of the cells from its mouth are going go the water. And if you take samples of this water, you might be able to see what animals are drinking from it and identify them. And they identified a very rare, very large species of wild sheep that have been unknown in the area. before. And they also isolated some primate DNA. And this primate DNA shared something like 90, 99% of its genetic makeup with human beings. So whatever left that was a primate that was close to the man in a chimpanzee. And I actually tracked down Dr. Eva Bellamain about and I, I communicated with her with, communicated with, uh, via email. And she told me that um, she she didn't retain the sample afterwards. It was retained by this company called SpyGen, which is a, a French genetics company. Spygen sounds is something about a James Bond thing.
1: It does sound like that, yeah.
0: <laughs> she, she, didn't, she didn't own it, but if it was still in existence, it, it would be on a shelf somewhere in their laboratory. Um, so I got a friend of mine, uh, Christopher Killian, who's a French cryptidologist, uh, and he wrote to Spygen saying, well, look, we've got people that want to do more work on that." Uh, we've got Copenhagen University ready to go on it. Uh, we want to do more genetic testing on the sample. And they said, well, we can't give it to you because it's not legally ours. It belongs to somebody else. So he wrote back saying, well, can you put me in touch with whoever legally owns this sample? Because it's really important that we do further work on it. So you know, it could be a whole new species with the higher primer. And they wrote back saying, uh, we can't, anymore anyway, because the sample has been room. So, make,
1: so here's. A, it, oh, I'm sorry.
0: I mean, make, make of that what you will.
1: Well, I guess, uh, I guess cons- it makes sense, to, you
0: know. A conspiracy theory would say, "Oh, oh, they're destroying it because they don't want anybody to find out that, uh, that the yeti exists and it's closely related to man because it'll freak out right-wing religious nuts or it will cause ruptures in." A big business they will have to protect the areas that it's found but just as equally, it could have been done through laziness and incompetence.
1: Yeah, I mean that happens more often than not, unfortunately. Or you know, if there's there's routine, you know, maintenance or whatever. Like, oh, we have all these samples from whenever, you know, we we you know we can't really hold on to it, you know, something something to that to that effect. Um, you know the the first question, let's say from you know a a naysayer. Well, actually, first before we we hop into that, let's. uh, What, what are you working on next? Now you're going going on going to Sumatra relatively soon. Are you working on any any new books? Any any anything coming coming down the pipeline?
0: Well, I've just that book, The Highest Strangeness, which is on deep strange 14 cases from all aspects of 14, and that should be out next year. Um. I'm not working on another book at the minute. I'll be writing up my expedition notes when I get back from uh, Sumatra, so they will be appearing in soon form or whatever. And uh, well while I was looking for the Orang-Kendek and the Orang-Kajil, there's another creature in the same forest that uh, the local people call the Chigau. They say it's a big cat, smaller than a tiger but larger than a leopard, highly aggressive, it has uh, sort of sandy coloured fur, slight ruff, like a lion's mane around the neck, but not as big of a lion. The front legs are longer than the back legs, so it gives it sloping back, um, rather like a hyena. It has a short tail like a lynx, and the canine teeth are very long and hang down, which sounds just like a saber tooth. It does. Uh, the na- the neighbouring island of Java are uh, fossils of uh, homopheids, uh, Called theory, uh from only ten thousand years ago. But uh, a cycling of this creature that you that you go can fill a whole um, a whole area and panic and terrifying.
1: So in that uh, that is actually really interesting. Ima- imagine if there was some sort of dis descendant of a saber toothed cat or something just, you know, out there. I guess I guess it's really it's really one of those things where um you know, you you'll have have somebody say, you know, okay, well there's no bodies found you know, you have a couple of hair samples, whatever. You know, how come we're not finding any bodies? Now, I my logic would be things decompose very fast out in the wilderness. You know, but you know, if somebody comes up to you and says, "Well, how why haven't you found a body?" Right? You know, what what would your be response? What would your response be?
0: Because corpses get eaten very fast, and not just the meat. The bone gets broken down as well. Rodents chew the bones for um, for the calcium in them. Um, this breaks them down. And uh, I mean, uh, I've, I've been down to some for years, and i found two skeletons of tapirs that were killed by, land, by by tigers. And there were very little of them left, just a few bits of the jawbone teeth. So if you're talking about something as elusive as, a, as an orang-pandex, the chances of finding a dead one before it gets eaten by something are uh, almost zero.
1: So there's so I guess we can take a little little trip north to kind of round out the show talk about one of my favorite cryptozoological creatures which is the Mongolian deathworm. worm, um, and your research into into the Mongolian deathworm worm uh, is is typic, typical of your of your very careful and and feet on the ground research, so r- rather than you know fire breathing dragons like we were talking about earlier you know. Um, you sort of, sort of say have have the theory that it could be some sort of burrowing reptile. Have you have you made any sort of new discoveries or or, or had a, had a chance to really interview anybody new or you know or even what is what is your version of the story of the death worm?
0: Well, we were over there in two thousand and five. We were oh, we were going to go back to make a documentary with um, a film crew, but COVID uh, put paid for that. <laughs> So whether that ha- ever happens, I don't know. Um, I've traveled for about a thousand miles through the Desert and talked about two different witnesses, uh, including an old man that had seen, seen it back in the 1930s when he was a boy, uh, two people that had seen it just the year before. and um, Once again, we have a remarkable consistency. Uh, a creature that is shaped like a, a salami reddish-brown colour, sort of a brick in colour, scaly, hard to tell which end is the head and which end is the tail. And it's usually found just lying in the desert in the ghost. And people that see it are terrified of it. Like the Chigalans, the market, it can send communities into panic. One guy said, as a boy, he had seen it when he was tending to his family's um, camels and goats. And he went and told his parents, and they rounded up the animals, packed up the girl, which is the circular tent there, and moved out of the area. Uh, if a death weren't seen in an area, people would move out of the area, they're flight man. Because been, they believe it can spit a corrosive uh, venom for acid acid. But when you talk to people, nobody knows anyone that's been killed by one. It's a story that gets repeated. Uh, it sounds to me from the description like either a sunflower which is a, yeah. uh, a small boon constriction snake, or a worm lizard, or ancusbana, which are boon reptiles that are related to snakes and lizards, but are not snakes and lizards, they're an group of their own. Um, they match up pretty good with the description of the death worm. Well, I think the death worm is an undiscovered uh, large Species of worm the or something. When I say large, I mean I mean, It's not
1: like that in June. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not like we're talking about like <laughs> dune or tremors or any, any anything in that realm. Um, I, I I do think it's interesting. There, uh, it's some of those some of the claims I, I I never quite understood if there was any sort of scientific backing for any of it. You know, like it shooting lightning or something like that and giving. Oh.
0: When you talk to the people, when you talk to the nomads in the desert, they say that's folkloric. They call it throwing lightning. They say that's just folklore. They believe it's venomous and it can spit, but I think that's folklore as well. Uh, one guy, an old retired colonel who had seen one when he was patrolling near the Chinese borderwood, he said he saw it early in the morning and it had dew on its back. And the dew was sparkling because it was catching the light. And he said it looked like electricity along he think that's where the idea
1: comes from and people on its back, it, it, it yeah that actually that makes makes a lot more sense its it's amazing you know we uh, we as humans we really like to we like to make stories right you know it's it's, it's how we sort of order reality around us and so I uh, that would make the most sense that we have we have data points right that we, that we work with and so we, we we have what we what we can what we can gather really through through an experience or something like that and then we build a story out of it. Uh, on, on our side of, of sort of the the unknown spectrum, yeah um, with ghost research right so so in our, our realm of paranormal research it's you know some you know, something could fall in a room and you know nobody's in that room, so maybe it's a ghost and so we you know, we, have, we have these data points that we work with and we try to build a story out of it. you know we know nobody's in that room uh, you know I, you know we know nobody else is in the house, but something fell in the other room. You know, but there's very obvious explanations. Could be a cat. You know, maybe there there was like a, a you know maybe a minor earthquake. You know, big truck goes by. Who knows? You know, and 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 at, at this point, you know, in your in your research, especially when it comes to uh, flesh and blood creatures that have sort of a folkloric significance, right? Kind of round out the show with this idea of, of folklore. How much of it is c- can be explained? Sort of characteristics of of a creature. Versus something that that sort of is like a, a, an assigned significance to either it appearing or or, or someone experiencing it.
0: Well, lots of familiar animals that were once unknown had all sorts of bizarre um, powers associated with them and behaviours. used to think that the gorilla would tear branches off trees and use them to fight elephants, and it will come back? Into native villages and carry off uh, women to rape—absolute nonsense. But the gorilla exists. The giant monkey tree frog from South America. Uh, native people said that its secretions had powers uh, to make you invisible in the jungle and negate uh, hunger and thirst. When biochemists found this creature and looked at its secretions, they found that they must Human scent effectively making you invisible in the general, and that they, they, the secretions can affect you, so you don't feel thirst and hunger so much. So that's that's a real a real thing. But it was just given a mystical a mystical um, sense to it. But sometimes it's political. Uh, one of the animals I'm most interested in, and I've been after it on three occasions, is the Tasmanian wolf, the a fleshy-tailed Dog like marsupial from Tasmania with spikes along its back. Uh, a very famous creature. Uh, its supposed to have died out in the 1930s. It was mercilessly persecuted uh, by Western settlers because they believed it was killing their sheep. They went over to Tasmania, wiped out the Tasmanian Aborigines, shot them off, wiped out the Tasmanian Indians, brought a load of sheep over, and they were making claims that. That was typically impossible for animals to do. The amount of sheep being killed in one night, due to these claims, it was ridiculous. But um, there were several bounties put on this animal, and it was hunted and snared and poisoned and shot. And there was a population crash uh, around about 1905. Uh, the last known one died in Hobart Zoo uh, in mid-30s. But since then, there have been over 4,000 sightings, including one by a zoologist called Thomas Marley. Uh, its continued survival has been predicted by computer programs, and one of its closest workers is the Tasmanian devil, and now know that that only needs a very small base population uh, to breed from, it doesn't need a large population. Uh, I've spoken to people over in Tasmania, uh, including a government licensed shooter who goes out Killing a feral cat, which were a bloody menace to not let like, everything appear. Um, uh, he's seen it twice. Uh, I talked to another guy who ran arboretum, and uh, he had a sighting with his wife in a car, and there was an underloaded car full of people who saw it at the same time. Another guy, who sadly passed away now, but in the 70s he worked on a hydroelectric plant, and he was driving with a car full of coworkers. workers and one of those things came out in front of the road. And they all saw it and observed it and knew exactly what it was. These are people that have no reason to lie. They're doing nothing from lying. So of all the pictures, I think the Tasmanian wolf is the one along with the and most likely to it. That
1: That's really interesting because that, that kind of leads into um, probably one of the last questions we'll probably have time for, unfortunately, um, which is how, how many of these occurrences um, would be animals that are presumed to be extinct uh, versus you know undiscovered creatures
0: that's a good question Um, a lot of them are creatures that are completely unknown to science because you know from the description they're not like anything else Uh, fewer I think are survivors of things you think are extinct I don't think there are any non-avian dinosaurs for example there are plenty of uh, dinosaurs that have feathers and, say, tweeds, right. uh, is weird, but I don't think there are any surviving non-Adean dinosaurs. Um, but things that uh, were extinct more recently, or supposedly, think, like the Tasmanian wolf, well, certainly, certainly, uh, they a part of a letter called the Zanzibar leopard, which was found on the islands off the coast of East Africa, sought to be extinct in the, the 60s, and Zanzibar is much smaller than Tasmania with a much bigger human population, much less wilderness, and the Zanzibar leopards survive. Uh, More recently, we found the the milk parrot, which was thought to have been extinct for decades and decades. No one has seen one in, oh, goodness knows, something like 50 years. And that turned up in Australia. So these things have been found all the time, and new species have turned up all the time. New species of tapir from South America, new species of manatee. I cover a lot of that in my latest book. My latest book here is um, In Search of Real Monsters. And that's the Tasmanian wolf-bell on the film. And it's the second part of a, a two-volume uh, series on cryptozoology. And in this, I look at the possibility of prehistoric survivors and extinct animals surviving like the giant ground slave and the Tasmanian wolf and and I look at uh, giant animals like giant crocodiles, of which there are stories from all over the world, some hair-raising, amazing stories of crocodiles far bigger than anything known to science. Giant anacondas and giant pythons. And then in the second half of the book, I recount all my adventures going all the way around the world, searching for the Yeti, the Tasmanian wolf, the giant anaconda, the Mongolian death worms, all of these strange creatures. Um, right up until our last expedition which was in 2018 in Tajikistan searching for a very common called the Goo, which may be a, uh, a descendant of uh, Homo Habilis or Homo Erectus but it's all in here all my adventures are all recounted in here and i also give advice uh, to people that might want to do their own cryptozoological expedition so how how do you do it how do you set up uh, a monster hunting expedition from scratch all the stages of what you need to do uh, to be a successful exhibition.
1: Oh, lovely. Well, uh, and uh, can you, where, where can you get these books? Where can people find out more about you? Uh,
0: well, In Search of Real Monsters is available on Amazon or you could order it through any bookshop. But Amazon is probably the best place you, you'll get it from. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for me, uh you can find out more about the Center for 14 Zoology and its work by going to the website at www.cfz.org.uk or just type in Center for 14 Zoology. And uh, my email is dr3uk at jahoo.com which is of course a reference to um, John Thirty, the third actor to play Doctor Who. Which Classic Doctor Who is my main uh, reason for getting into strange creatures and cryptozoology and all this weirdness. On it. Oh, Massive wow. 60s and 70s Doctor Who, but uh, the modern woke, gender flipped rubbish. you can stick where the sun don't shine.
1: Eh, <laughs> un- unfortunate, but still, hey, you know, well, well, thank you for being being on with me, me Richard. It's, uh, it's it's been a been a wonderful show, and you know, hey, when when you get back from Sumatra, we'll have to have you on and, and, and talk about your findings.
0: Hopefully, we'll have found something this time. Seen this this time we get some good hard evidence. I'd
1: love to get some film. Oh, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure. I'm sure you'll find something. There's and even even though you know it's it's uh it's it's your ground your feet on the ground research is and and your your techniques they're just you know I'm I'm sure you'll you'll come up with something for for sure. Um, but once again, thank you. And I guess we'll it's time time for us to hop right into the the announcements here. Uh, and it starts off with the Exeter UFO Festival, and that's, that's, uh, coming up next week. It returns after a couple of years, actually. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's gonna be wonderful to be back in Exeter, New Hampshire. That's at the town hall. That's over Labor Day weekend, so September 3rd and 4th. Uh, this is a great event, and the whole town gets involved. Uh, it's sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club, uh, to benefit local children's charities. Along with ourselves, speakers will include Kathleen Martin, Peter Robbins, uh, Jennifer Stein, Bob Terrio, Mike Stevens. Lynn Nickerson and Valerie LaFasso and Mac Maloney, uh, among others. Uh, the subject of our talk will be time storms, and that's, uh, with thanks to the great British researcher Jenny Randalls, uh, who coined the term. And we plan to do our traditional live broadcast from the event with a panel of the speakers. That's all, always, uh, always a rodeo, never, never a dull moment, especially when it comes to, uh, to remote broadcasts, but it should be a good time, and we, we always get some great questions from the audience, and, uh, you know, it's gonna be an all, all-star panel. So it'll be a lot of fun. So that's next weekend, September 3rd and 4th, in Exeter, New Hampshire, at the Exeter, uh, New Hampshire Town Hall. And uh, you can find out more about that event. That You can visit uh, exeterufofestival.org for more details. You can uh, visit our show website as well. That's behindtheparanormal.com, where you can find over uh, 1,100 hours of our, of our regular shows and uh, special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio Achieve Radio, and here on WON, AM, and FM, including uh, those that have been restored to our archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. You can also hear us from, uh, you can also hear these broadcasts uh, as well as uh, on um, most major podcast platforms, whether it's uh, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, you can hear it on YouTube, anywhere where you get your podcasts, you can find us, uh, and you can check those out as well. And we do have a show app. Uh, It's free at BehindTheParanormal.com, and you can uh, browse books at BehindTheParanormal.com as well. The show app doesn't really do much, um, but it it does get you the podcast, so if you want a direct source for it, it's all there. And you can find that at BehindTheParanormal.com. You can also find our books there, uh, along with our guest co-hosts there at our website. And uh, you can also find um, out more about us. And our cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, and what we're doing, and our, our schedules, and all that good stuff behind the paranormal.com. And you can also find there our charity page, which we have links to several good causes that we've adopted over the years, including uh, Hope for Hilldale Cemetery uh, in Haverhill, Massachusetts, uh, run by our good friend Tom Spitaleri, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, Helping Hades Orphans, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, of uh, America, the Sisterhood of Ground Zero and most recently the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund. Um and uh as as mentioned before, next week it's uh, that's September 4th, which is Labor Day weekend here in the United States. Uh as we mentioned we'll be doing our show live uh with a live audience from the Exeter UFO Festival. So don't miss it. So anybody who has done a talk there will be on the panel. And we'll, we'll be talking about a myriad of things. It's, it's always a, a wide-ranging, uh, you know, wild ride. <laughs> we always talk yeah. about so a, lot, a lot of different things, and a lot of people get, get involved with it. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it again this year. So today we leave you with a thought from Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, maybe. Uh, Mysteries create wonder, and wonder is the basis of man's desire to understand. I'm Ben Eno, and my father, Paul, will be back with us next week for the live broadcast. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.